we're going to tell you the story of Alice in Wonderland. You all know Alice in Wonderland? It's all crammed with warm, lovable characters and, and cute, fluffy little bunny rabbits. Look, either you tell me where the rabbit hole is, or I tear your head off. Uh, uh, just back behind the curtains. Thanks. Uh, uh, and also cruel, heartless, violent little bunny rabbits. Hi-ho, and welcome once again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, what's the word on the street? Uh, The Blue Angels are in town, so I think I'm going to be staying inside this weekend. The Blue Angels are in town? (laughs) They are. Like, I, I should, I know it's a time for celebration, and people, I, I guess this is sort of like watching the leaves change in New England or something like that. But living in the city, it ju- it's a pain to get around. I work like in the financial district, which is right near where they are. It's it's building character. You're talking about the Blue Angels, like the 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 fighter jets, right? Correct. Just making sure it wasn't code for something. That's a fair question. I do talk in code a fair amount. So they're just flying over the city a lot. Hmm. Which I don't, this time of night, we're probably not going to need to worry about it on the recording, but. Yeah, they tend to do it during the day when people can see him. Mm-hmm. This is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at lunatic daring on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Although that's getting less and less because social media is poison. <laughs> and then, uh, um, uh, our website, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently uh, watching The Muppet Show Season 5, two episodes at a time. We're just getting started on that. A couple of interesting episodes tonight. One of them not on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. uh, for reasons we'll talk about. And one of them that uh, came with the cultural content warning. So- it almost, almost gets away with it. That's the thing is usually when we get a cultural content warning within the first five to 10 minutes, we know why. Yeah. It took this one. This was a slow burn. It's a slow burn and it's really good up until then. Mm -hmm. So let's get started. Let's get started. So yeah, last time, Nick, I told you, I I thought you were really going to enjoy the James Coburn episode. That's because I knew it had a lot of animal in it. And you're an animal fan. You're not wrong. There's a lot of this episode that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I had forgotten about the final number. (laughs) So we'll talk about the final number. James Harrison Coburn III was born in Laurel, Nebraska on August 31st, 1928. After his father's garage business was put under due to the Great Depression, the family moved around a bunch, and Coburn ended up growing up in Compton, California, where he attended junior college. In 1950, he was drafted into the Army, where he worked as a truck driver and a disc jockey at an Army radio station in Texas. After that, he he caught the acting bug sometime around here. I couldn't figure out when, but he caught the acting bug at some point. And he studied under the great acting coach Stella Adler at the Los Angeles City College and made his stage debut um, that year or one of those years uh, at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. So I really don't know what got him into acting. He didn't didn't seem to be the trajectory he was on, but that's where he ended up. 
He got his professional start in TV, doing a live play for Sidney Lumet and guest starring on a number of Westerns like Bonanza, Tales of Wells Fargo, The uh, Restless Gun. In 1960, he landed a role in John Sturgis's The Magnificent Seven, which was his first big film role. After that, he played support in many films, including Hell is for Heroes with Steve McQueen, The Great Escape, also with Steve McQueen. He was a villain in the Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn thriller Charade. Uh, he played a lot of played a lot of tough guys. He was in Major Dundee, albeit as a Native American, uh, alongside Charlton Heston. His first big leading role came in the film Our Man Flint, a 1966 James Bond parody, where he starred as a secret agent Derek Flint. He only did two of those movies. Um, it could have been a big franchise for him, but he bailed after the second one. Uh, then he starred in a series of flops, including Sergio Leone's Duck You Sucker, a.k.a. A Fistful of Dynamite, which is awesome, but the least regarded among Sergio Leone's westerns. He almost starred in A Fistful of Dollars, but he asked for more money than Clint Eastwood and didn't get the part. He went back to his major Dundee director, Sam Peckinpah, to do 1973's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, playing Pat. None of these films were particularly successful, though. 20th Century Fox dropped the option they had on him because his films weren't making any money. But he kept working. He was in the star-studded war flick Midway, Walter Hill's film Hard Times, teamed up with Peckinpah for the last time for Cross of Iron, had a cameo in the Muppet movie. He was very into Zen and Tibetan Buddhism. Not sure when he got into that, but it was a big part of his life. He was a friend and student of Bruce Lee and and was a pallbearer at Lee's 1973 funeral, alongside his old co-star, Steve McQueen. The 1980s were tough due to a uh, really bad case of rheumatoid arthritis, but he did continue to work. He had supporting roles in 90s movies, such as Young Guns 2, Hudson Hawk, Maverick, The Nutty Professor. And his role in Affliction, opposite Nick Nolte, won him a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. He's also the voice of Henry Waternoose, the villain of Pixar's Monsters, Inc., he was real big into cars. Like, he was so big into cars, he may have been the one that got Steve McQueen into cars. That's how big into cars he is. Uh, from 1998 until his death, he, he James narrated Chevrolet's Like a Rock commercials, uh, having earlier made quite a bit of money shilling for Schlitz Light and being the face of the most popular cigarette brand in Japan. He married twice and had two children. James Coburn died in 2002 from a heart attack. He was 74. Played a lot of tough guys. But it was probably actually really nice. He, he might. Yeah, I, I didn't find any like particularly salacious things about him and in, in my research. Um, but he just uh, he, he he had the look. Uh, the Muppet Show episode number 505 with special guest star James Coburn produced early April 1980 debuted that October. Uh, like we said, um, this episode has a cultural content warning, meaning there are depictions of. Uh, other cultures uh, in this episode that were not okay then or not okay now and don't hold up to modern standards. Like Nick said, we get so close in this one. <laughs> we really did. And then it just hits you at the end like a ton of bricks. So um, in our cold open, James come in, comes in. Uh, he's wearing this kind of uh, pimping white suit or white sports coat and um, pops he tells Pops who he is and he goes, oh, yeah, you're that tough guy. Are you here to take out a contract on the frog? <laughs> so right away, I don't know what show Pops has been watching. <laughs> What's going on backstage where Pops thinks somebody's taking out a hit on Kermit? I mean, to be fair, Kermit did try to fire Miss Piggy not too long ago, and I could see her being vindictive. 
It's true. She'd more likely do it herself, though. If I can't have you, no one can. Hmm. And uh, and then he says, no, I'm just a guest. And Pops goes, yeah, I bet that bulge in your pocket is just a pipe, which I thought was dirty there for a second. I did, too. You know exactly where my mind went. But he pulls out a, a pipe, a tobacco pipe. And he goes, in fact, it is. Um, and uh, so that was the bulge in his pocket. And it was his chest pocket. That's important. It's important. Important distinction. Uh, and then Scooter comes in to uh, take James to his dressing room. And then Jason, James says, yeah, hurry up. And his pipe turns into a gun, basically. And he shoots a couple of cap shots at uh, Scooter's feet, like a cap gun. What they call that, a turn on a turn or whatever, right? But uh, we, we've got James Coburn, tough guy. Even his pipe shoots bullets. We had the Muppet Show theme. Gonzo's trumpet doesn't make any sound whatsoever. It does, uh, though. I actually thought this was probably one of the more clever ones that we've had. Because uh, you don't hear a thing, but then Fufu comes in in response to it. And uh, and Gonzo says, uh, well, she heard it because he, he, he was a dog whistle. So Kermit comes out to introduce our first act. <laughs> direct from the lamp, lamp, direct from the lamprey, lamprey, that's a tough word to say. Direct from the lamprey lounge of the Bermuda Triangle Hilton, here are the Sargasso Bottom Rhythm Boys. Which is a group of three octopi who play the kazoo and the snare drum. But what are they playing, Nick? Oh, they're playing Temptation. <laughs> <clears throat> and to be clear, I loved this, this sketch. It does not top the first time we saw Temptation because that was like the precursor to all that Miss Piggy would eventually become. But seeing Animal try and lose, or try not to and just end up losing all of his, his cool is amazing. My wife was proud. She caught the fact. She was like, oh, no, they've done this song before. <laughs> yeah, so so they're playing a very slow version of Temptation where it's just really kind of... What what Animal is most offended by is that this is square. Mm-hmm. This is going to come back later. Square drums! Yucky drums! Actually, the Animal's offense at something being square. But he says they're square drums, yucky drums. <laughs> That's what he calls them. Yucky drums. He just can't believe that he's having to watch these people play drums so boringly. Floyd tries to keep him in check, but eventually it lets him go. And Animal crashes onto the stage and attacks the octopi. This is why I thought you'd enjoy this episode. It absolutely is. And also, just, they don't, their facial expressions don't move much. No. But the the octopus, like every single octopus has that moment of trepidation. And whoever's performing as them is doing a hell of a job just yeah. like that slight tremble or something it's perfect yeah no he he goes through and he messes up all the octopi and to the point where he throws one up in the stellar motors box um but they go flying animals not having any square drums played on his show so for some reason beauregard sends rizzo out there to tame it and to get to calm animal down wasn't quite sure the thought process on that at all maybe it's just hazing since rizzo's the new guy and maybe Rose it's hazing. finally able to just like it's your turn to deal with animal that's true it could just be like it could be like cleaning the latrine you know hmm. like it's for the noobs james coburn's comes out of his uh, dressing room and kermit tells him it's really cool to have a, a hollywood tough guy on the show <laughs> and at that moment animal comes in wrestling an octopus so I had I had two notes on this. Did you ever watch uh, 
So you had the TV Funhouse bits on SNL, but there was an actual TV Funhouse show uh, complete with a bunch of puppets called the Annapals. Okay. Uh, the cat in the background, there's like one that's just sort of like licking itself on the, the banister. Mm-hmm. Looks like it. it's different from the typical Muppets we see. It's probably something closer to what we would have seen in Bremen, but it looks just like that. Also, James Coburn in the section doesn't remind me of anyone so much as Stacy Keach. Yeah, a little bit. I can see that. I can see Stacy Keach. Actually, in the Of Muppets and Men book, they describe the shooting of this scene. Mm-hmm. Because Frank is operating Miss Piggy where she's on the second level there, right? Mm-hmm. And then Miss Piggy goes into her room and closes the door. James Coburn comes out of his door and he comes down the stairs. While that's happening, Frank is dumping Piggy, running back around the stage, getting animal onto his arm, getting his animal headset onto his head, and being there just in time to bring animal in frame wrestling the octopus. <laughs> They, they did they shot coverage so when you watch it it doesn't play in one shot unfortunately mm-hmm. but according to Muppets and men they shot that all in one shot where Frank so so Frank is scrambling underneath <laughs> the set to get down there so he can bring animal in wrestling an octopus and not not only does he have to get in there on time he has to figure out what it looks like for animal to wrestle an octopus that's why Frank's the best so he uh, he spots animal trying to eat his chair. And uh, he tells the animal, that's not how you destroy a chair. And he picks it up and he slams it kind of WWE style against the banister mm. and breaks it into pieces, showing you what a real, you know, kind of Bobby guy. Knight style mm. um, shows you what a real, how a real tough guy breaks furniture, basically. And as Coburn retreats up to his uh, dressing room, uh, <laughs> animal looks right at the camera and says, my kind of guy, my kind of guy. <laughs> Game recognizes game. Game recognizes game. And a nice callback to Rita Moreno. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be subtext there, but there doesn't have to be. So then we get our next number. Um, we get Wayne in disguise. That's This is effectively like a successful Wayne and Wanda sketch because they make it all the way through. Yes. Yeah. And the, and the puppet is Wayne, mm-hmm. just with blue hair. Bad anime um, hair. Both of them have terrible anime hair. They do like, have anime hair. <laughs> but like it's it's really humid out or something. I don't yeah. <laughs> It's it's funny. We had them doing Temptation earlier and then this song, uh these uh, a male muppet, uh like I said Wayne with blue hair, sings a song called uh, They Long to Be Close to You to his lady friend. Connie Stevens sang that in episode 102. So we got all sorts of uh flashbacks in this one. And uh as he sings the song um, birds appear, stars appear, um, frightening baby Muppets appear. Oh my god. And they get stuck to her because they all want to be close to her, is the joke. And she kind of accumulates everybody in a kind of a Katamari Damachi kind of way. What'd you think of the babies? I don't. It's never a pleasant surprise. Like, I'm, I'm glad to be watching the Muppets. I love what they've done. <laughs> the baby Muppets are just. Like, I'm. I don't want to see one crawling down the hall, like down a dark hallway at me. You didn't, uh, you didn't, you didn't like them as cherubs. Come on. They were cute little cherubs. No, <laughs> no, I did not. Yeah. So they all end up getting, I actually thought this was funny. It's, it's a good clean uh, baby Muppets, notwithstanding. It's a good <laughs> clean sketch. Good, good on Wayne to sneak his way back onto the show. Well, I mean, 
since Kermit fired him and he decided to guilt him about it on the This Is Your Life episode. <laughs> maybe maybe he's finally, Wanda's mom's social security finally ran out. That must be it. So we go backstage and there's the octopi or just one of the octopuses is just kind of hanging out. And uh, Kermit kind of scooches him away. And Scooter comes and tells Kermit some very interesting news, which is that James Coburn and Animal have become friends. They are kindred spirits and they have become friends. And that they are up in uh, James's dressing room swapping stories. But then you hear a yell and a chair comes flying out of the room. And then you hear James Coburn go, oh, yeah. And then another chair comes flying out of the room. So I don't know what they're discussing. Uh, defenestration? <laughs> well, technically, yeah, they're just discussing defenestration. I mean, that would be my first guess. They're practicing it. <laughs> Next time it'll be a body. So so, so that's kind of our backstage story, really, for this episode, is that James Coburn and, and uh, Animal are buddies. It's going to be kind of our backstage. That and the octopus. Fozzie and Link are come up and they're in uniform all ready to go for bear on patrol. And Kermit reminds them that they don't have a sketch uh, that they, that their sketch is until the second half. And so the uh, Fozzie says, they'll go wait in the car. Okay. We'll wait in the squad car. No, we'll take this thing with you. Would you? Oh, in that case, we'll wait in the squid car. <laughs> that was dumb, but I actually got a good chuckle out of that. <laughs> you you like the squid car joke. I, I'm not proud of the Octopuses fact that I are not squid squids. Car. I I know, I know. There's several there's several jokes about squids. It's like an octopus is not a squid. I mean, we've got all sorts of cultural content warnings on this episode. I don't think they're going for sensitivity. The octopus lobby isn't very strong yet. Yet, uh, Kermit comes out to introduce the the their next number, which is a salute to the Roaring Twenties. Um, and then very oddly, a a large lion. <laughs> There was something, I can't put my finger on it, but something bothered me about <clears throat> this particular Muppet. Maybe it was the eyes. Yeah, he's a, he's a large lion. He reminded me kind of of the lion from um, Sylvester Stallone. Mm-hmm. When Stallone was in the gladiator ring. Mm-hmm. Um, but he comes in and asks, and asks Kermit if he needs him to roar because it's the roaring 20s. And Kermit's like, no, we don't need you to do that. He's like, who are you going to, who's going to roar? You? A misunderstanding of Roaring Twenties. But then again, as a kid, I probably would have been more interested in the lion than the idea of the Roaring Twenties because I had no idea what that is. True. So the Muppets salute to the Roaring Twenties. We have a character named Betsy Bird. I think this is the only time we're going to see Betsy, but um, she was uh, a suit made for a dancer named Betsy Betos. Um, and uh, she, uh, so she's kind of kind of like um, Graham, Graham Fletcher before. Um, Fletcher Bird. They named the character after the dancer Betsy Bird, and she's in a in a twenties nightclub. The the mayhem is there playing, and they're they're kind of in almost zoot suits. And Betsy Bird is singing to the Varsity Drag, which is, you know an old Roaring Twenties like speakeasy type song. This might be my favorite bit of the episode, and it feels a lot longer than most of the other sketches we get. It's long because it's got two pieces, right? It's got it's got the first piece, which is the dance by Betsy Bird to the music, which is not insignificant. You know, it it, go, it takes some time, um, and it's entertaining, and you're watching the other Muppets and stuff. Um, and then we meet Gonzo, the Gons, as he calls himself. A hey. <laughs> exactly. He should never call himself the Gons. 
he's there and uh, he's he 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 runs he runs this club. This club is called Club Mildew, which is in line with Gonzo's interests. Mm-hmm. And um, he's he is informed by one of his henchmen that there's a new gang coming into town to kind of like muscle in on their business. And uh, he's incredulous to that. You know, no one, no one muscles in on the Gons. But then uh, James Coburn comes in, aka Big Jimmy, as uh, Gonzo tells him, and uh, he tells Gonzo he's finished. And Gonzo calls Jimmy a two-bit hood, and they uh, they start getting into a little kind of pissing match about who's going to run the uh, who's going to run things around here. Big Jimmy tells Gonzo that he and his mob are going to change things around the place. And then he realizes he hasn't brought a mob, which I, th- that moment really made me laugh. <laughs> it was the, uh, the precursor to the whole, we have a Hulk moment. in the first <laughs> yeah. Movie. yeah. Yeah. It was so funny. Cause he's like me and my mob. Gonzo's like, what mob? And he turns, turns around and he goes, they were right behind me when I got here. Um, so I thought that was funny, but off stage, luckily for, for big Jimmy, he's got an ally off stage. <laughs> Because waiting in the wings is animal, and all animal can say to himself is, "Help Jimmy, help Jimmy, help Jimmy." My life for you. There's. I, I also had a question because at some point, I hope I haven't. I'm not jumping ahead. Jimmy grabs Gonzo and uses him to open a can, like they used to open those old Hawaiian punch cans. Yeah, he uses him a can opener. Yeah. Like, how durable is that nose? <laughs> can I don't know. Can, Dom, can can he punch through like proper iron? Can he use that to break into like buildings and stuff? Because I've never actually seen it used in that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's held him up before, but that's not the same thing as like puncturing power. It could explain though why he's been able to hold himself up by it in multiple occasions. Is that it is more rigid? Mm-hmm. You know that it is tougher than we believe it is. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it. I don't, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it was funny when he uses it to pop open a bottle of root beer or a can of root beer. So animal. Because his best friend is now on stage alone, surrounded by other gangsters. Animal comes in, comes in and just whoops everybody's ass. Um, with uh, and Coburn helps too, and Muppets go flying and 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 everything. And then um, it's finally down to Coburn and Gonzo again. And God's he pulls out his violin case. He goes, "That's not a violin in there, is it?" And he's like, "Nope." And he pulls out a piccolo. Now I didn't find anything. In my research about whether or not James Coburn actually played the piccolo, I'm going to go ahead and say he did. I mean, there's no real reason to believe that he doesn't, although the idea of them just having a piccolo backstage and being like, we can work with this. See, that's possible too. That's what I'm saying. But like, I don't know. I, I like to believe that James Coburn wanted to show off his piccolo skills. Hmm. Um, but he plays his piccolo. This is why it seems long to use because it, it is long because then it goes into another song. Mm-hmm. Then it goes into Alexander's Ragtime Band. Yeah, they kind of, uh, and so it, so it all ends with everybody singing and having a good time. But um, a long number, but a fun number. It, yeah, I, it was the highlight of the episode for me, for sure. So we get to our UK spot. UK, the UK spot this week is not on Disney+. Plus. I checked it out uh, from my Nickelodeon copy. Um, it involves Betsy the Bird and Kermit tells her how much he really liked her last dance, her dance in the last sketch. 
and asks if she can do any other dances. And she uh, she does a she has a group of birds and they play a song called Bird Walk. And uh, Rolf's on the piano for some reason. They couldn't get a bird that plays the piano, I guess. And it's just another dance sequence for Betsy Bird. So then we get one of my favorite Bear on Patrols. It's a it's a short but sweet one, but it's good. Uh, Patrol Bear has arrested a man with a banana for a nose. Uh, his name is Banana Nose Banana Nose Maldonado, and uh, uh, he brings him into Link, and somehow Banana Nose convinces them that he is their chief inspector by just inceptioning it, or just flat out lying and them being idiots. I feel like there's that rule about walking into a place with confidence and people assuming that you're supposed to be there. So Banana Nose Maldonado uh, talks his way out of the situation by just lying. Hmm. And then uh, as he leaves, Fozzie happens to glance up at a wanted poster on the wall. Now, usually the wanted posters are of like the mayhem, but this time the wanted poster is of a man very distinctly with a banana for a nose. It's kind of hard to mistake. It is. And Fozzie is very dismayed and wonders what the commissioner will think. Link, of course, is just a dunderhead about it. I mean, at least he's honest. So then we get to, when I think of this episode, the image that I think of is this next one, which is of James Coburn and Animal meditating. The, I don't remember when that movie came out. I know it's longer ago than I'm comfortable with it being, but the, the Jason Siegel Muppet movie where animals in an anger management course, and he's just constantly meditating and saying in control. Animals having a hard time, obviously meditating. I feel him. I've tried. I really have tried. And uh, but he's having a hard time sitting still. Um, and James has got him in a, you know, they're in the lotus position and, and, and trying to be calm and serene and animal just can't quite get the grasp on it. And then um, uh, Kermit comes in and interrupts their meditation session and goes, you know, what for, you know, I think it's great what you're doing with animal, you know, like he doesn't say it, but he's like, he's been a problem. You know, it's great. It's great. What you're doing with animal. And I can't wait for the big finale. You, you know, the finale. Remember, remember, our big finale is this rootin' tootin' cowboys and Indians type of type of you know finale. You know, with lots of guns and horses. And James is like, "Animal and I have been talking about it. <laughs> we have some ideas about the script." And he says, "We want to do a salute to Japan." And I wrote down, "Uh oh." As soon as he said that, he, he actually says that he studied because at first, at first he mentions that he studies Oriental philosophy. And I was like, OK, maybe the cultural content warning is the use of the word Oriental. I mean, that's a start. OK, I can handle that, though, right? I can handle that if that's as bad as it gets. I feel like that's never as bad as it gets. And I, and I do know that he studied this stuff and, and believed in this stuff. So Kermit's. Problem is, Kermit's already hired the cowboys. He's already hired the horses. He's already ready for the rootin' tootin' gun show. The cowboys are hanging out, and now they got nothing to do. And Scooter comes in and tells them that that a bus, <laughs> the bus for the Tokyo Tai Chi, Karate, and Chowder Society has broken down outside the theater. So in a perfect combination of circumstances, James wants to do a salute to Japan, and a bus full of Japanese people have broke down in front of the... Uh, theater so we call that kismet right yeah you could i mean it's about as likely as an armored truck breaking down and supplying you with gold for the final number 
So then we get our final ro- number, which I just wrote danger, Will Robinson danger. <laughs> so at first it starts off great. James is playing on, on a gong and animal has his own little gong and yeah. Okay. We got a little cultural appropriation happening. Right. But I can live with a little cultural appropriation. I saw the new Elvis movie. I can live with a little cultural appropriation. <laughs> oh, but then the Japanese, it's hard to explain. Then the jet and animal can't stay with it. He's trying to play all serenely and animal keeps hitting the gong hard and kind of throwing off everybody's rhythm and stuff. Cause he's animal and he's just, he's just not cut out for the serene lifestyle. Oh uh, yeah. You could say that. Then how to explain it? Three Japanese women. I hope I'm not out of place. I, it's stereotypically what's been presented. If you ever hear anyone discuss like a geisha aesthetic, um, yeah, they like look like geishas. painted faces, and it's it's not somehow it's not as racist as what we got on the. Uh, no, we're not to the real racist part yet. Yeah, we're, well, but the puppets themselves, because I remember with the, yeah. the Spike Milligan episode, the second that you saw the the Chinese Muppets or the presumed Chinese Muppets. Yeah, it was real racist. This doesn't feel no. like that. If anything, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for this. Feel free to cut it. The way that their faces are designed on these Muppets remind me of some of the podlings from the Dark Crystal. They look just like podlings. Oh, thank God. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, they look just like podlings. And they start doing that sort of camp down girls thing. For all of the scene's faults, James never breaks a stride. And he's like, he's. Uh, I'm forgetting one of our former guest stars was someone who was known for calling square dances and he just seems right at home doing that. Well, yeah. So, so what happens is the Cowboys show up and they're like, you guys are dying out here. This act is dying. And he goes, what kind of dance is that anyway? Looking at one of the geishas and, uh, an animal says square. Yes. Square dance. Really can't beat him. This isn't square. We'll show you square. And they start up a square dance with the cowboys and the Japanese women. And we're still not to the racist part yet. I mean, it's not not racist at this point. But we're not to the part that made my wife go, oh my God. Fair enough. So then James starts calling the dance like he's calling a square dance. And he you're right, he does a good job doing it. Bring your partners to and fro all join in with an all-sorts I believe the term is not not offensive. It's real bad. <laughs> I mean, it's real brief. It's real brief, but it does come across as really tone deaf. And um, now the rest of the rest of it doesn't come across quite as racist. It's just a bunch of cliches. But when he does the voice is really when it kind of kind of kills it, kills the mood <laughs> to an extent is when he does his, his Japanese accent. It's a shame, too, because like the number is actually fun. My girls were dancing around to the square dance and everything, too. Like, they, you know, they weren't listening to the words. And I, mean, I guess if they grow up racist, I can blame it on this. But that, that's the one thing that one must have chose catch that they shouldn't. Yeah, have seen. I'll, I'll just go back. I'll just go back to I knew I shouldn't have showed them the cultural content episodes. 
Now they got MAGA hats and all sorts of stuff. Here's the thing about it. Maybe I get in trouble for this. It's a really good closing number. Um, I think it's a really good closing number. I think it's a lot of fun. There's an episode of... I can't remember which one it was. Shelley Duvall had a fairy tale series, not unlike the storyteller, which we'll get to in a later episode. And it starred Mick Jagger, but it was Mick Jagger in a telling of, I believe the story was the nightingale and Mick Jagger is in yellow face, but Mick Jagger being in yellow face is him with like white painted on face, sort of like we see on these Muppets. And it's right. just weird. Right. Like it's just, I, it doesn't make anything okay. It just, there's so much chaos there that you're just sort of like, is the, it, it does, none of it feels hateful, but it doesn't, it definitely doesn't fly. You're right. It doesn't come across as hateful. The, the, the fake accent comes, feels a little mocking. Mm-hmm. Feels a little like mocking, but, mm-hmm. but besides that, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's sadly a really fun number. <laughs> He even he doesn't just do a Japanese voice, by the way. He does a Japanese face to go along with the voice, mm-hmm. and that just—it's just—it's a bad look. Uh, so we come out of the square dance. We have a little more Asian humor. Then we cut cut to Statler and Mordorf, and they are currently being asphyxiated to death by an octopus. They probably deserved it. I still like this episode. Yeah, no, I they're I'm split on it. There are aspects of it that I I like, and I was, obviously, if animals getting a lot of screen time, I'm probably going to be more predisposed to like the episode but it's i want to call it solid with the caveat that there is a con or a cultural content warning yeah like i don't we've we've had episodes that have fallen flat this doesn't do that it just makes us uncomfortable it just makes it just makes us uncomfortable and it and it it sullies it a little bit Tell me a little bit about the youngest guest star in the history of the Muppet show. All right. So before I go into Brooke Shields' bio, I need to preface this as I, I do every so often. She is still alive and doing well as far as I know, but also she has lived a long and storied life. So I'm going to have to gloss over a few things, but Brooke Krista Shields was born in Manhattan, New York on May 31st, 1965, to Terry Shields, Ni Schmon, and I hope I didn't mispronounce that, and Frank Shields. Frank would marry Terry, and they would divorce when Brooke was five months old. She began her career as a model at 11 months old. She, her first job was for Ivory Soap. When she was five, her mother stated that, quote, she's the most beautiful child, and I'm going to help her with her career. Brooke took piano, ballet, and horse riding lessons. She had a role in Annie Hall in 1977, though the role was cut out of the final edit. Her first full film role uh, was a movie called Pretty Baby from 1978, in which she would play a child prostitute. Um, yep. We're going to come back to that theme in just a little bit. Uh, around that same time, she had her first encounter with the paparazzi. That was at the Waldorf Astoria. She was roughly age 12. 1980, she is the youngest guest star on The Muppet Show and the youngest model to ever appear on the cover of Vogue. She modeled for Calvin Klein that same year, which helped rise, helped Calvin Klein rise to fame. And she starred in Blue Lagoon. That would also feature into certain, well, into a one trial in particular in the future, discussing effectively the way that we sexualize kids. 
She attended the New Lincoln School until eighth grade, which was a kindergarten through eighth grade. It's a private experimental school. From 1981 to 1983, Brooke, her mother, and a photographer named Gary Gross uh, and Playboy Press were involved in litigation in New York courts over the rights to photo- <clears throat> excuse me over the rights to photographs that her mother had signed away to Gross, who had taken pictures of a then 10 year old Brooke in 1975. It is important that we say that her mother gave consent for this for the Playboy Press publication Sugar and Spice. Um, I don't think. Before this, there were a lot of laws protecting children in these cases. In 1983, she graduated from Dwight Englewood School and went to Princeton to pursue her BA in French literature. She graduated in class of 1987. She published her first autobiography in 1985 titled On Your Own. Typically, someone at that age publishing their own autobiography would seem like a little much. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, she'd lived. She'd lived a lot. She was a member of the Princeton Triangle Club and the Cap and Gown Club, which were effectively social clubs within that context. Shortly after graduating from college, her four-year transcript was published in the July 1987 of Life magazine, which just feels weird. She's she's lived her entire life in front of a camera at this point, basically, but I don't understand why a magazine would be like, let's point, publish her entire college transcript. Look at all these classes that she took. Um, in the 1990s, she promoted a lot of physical fitness and was, she didn't go full Jane Fonda, or at least I don't think she went full Jane Fonda. Uh, in 1997, she got married for the first time to a man named Andre Agassi, who was a tender tennis player. The marriage would last until 1999. In 2001, she married TV writer, Chris Hinchy, who's known for working with Will Ferrell, with whom she has two daughters. Uh, she is still alive. I've glossed over a lot of her roles because she did have a lot of them. She had a recurring role on that 70s show as Jackie's mom, which was played by Mila Kunis. She was in an episode of Quantum Leap and Tales from the Crypt um, and Friends. Uh, and she's still... Her most recent uh, TV appearance was called what I, or was on something called Would I Lie to You, which was released in 2022. Yeah, she's still working. Yeah, she's still working. She's currently 57. And honestly, I'm sure I've glossed over a lot of this, but she seems pretty well adjusted for just the way that things started for her. That is Brooke Shields in very brief. Yeah, her childhood's fairly controversial, to say the least. You could say that, yeah. Yeah, she was very prematurely sexualized. I would not put my child in that position. Um, no, no, it's not the episode or the Muppet show episode five Oh six featuring guest star Brooke Shields produced between April 7th and April 10th, 1980. It would premiere in the UK on November 9th, the same year. And a couple weeks earlier stateside on October the 18th. Uh, it does bear mentioning that at only 14 years old, Brooke Shields was the youngest guest star in the Muppet shows series history. It also the, bears mentioning that this episode is not on Disney plus. Oh, right. This is, this is not on Disney plus. Um, and she also apparently helped put some of the puppets together because the child labor laws could only let her be on set for so long. And that would actually affect the way that some of the way that the episode was framed. So we get to our cold opening. Brooke arrives expecting to appear on the muffin show, which is not the last time we'll hear this joke, but the white rabbit race is past. I've got notes on the right rabbit in a little bit. And actually, while we're on the subject, definitely because we're all on the subject, I'm probably going to make reference to things sliding past the radar a couple of times during the course of this episode. 
that is going to likely, more likely than not, just be talking about drug references. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small, and the ones that mother gives you don't do anything. get back to that in a second she seems kind of confused to be where she's at i I think they make her direct reference to the alice in wonderland uh pop gives her a script yeah pops gives her a a script for the for the episode as of alice in wonderland and she thought she was going to be on the muffin show which i think was a gilda radner joke did she say something about being on the muffin show that sounds right yeah but yeah this rabbit is um he's not not a cute not a cute sweet little rabbit no he's one of those null hairs uh, but we get to the Muppet Show theme and Gonzo gets the hiccups when he tries to play his trumpet. This happened before on episode 301. Kermit comes out as he's wont to do and reveals that this episode will tell the tale from Alice in Wonderland. And he starts talking about the warm, lovable characters and the cute, fluffy bunny rabbits. Um, at which point <laughs> the rabbit just runs in and it says, look, either you tell me where the rabbit hole is or I tear your head off. And this is the first time I think we get a good proper look at just how pink the rabbit's eyes are. Yeah, he looks like note- shot. Oh, yeah. The note that I put in is that the rabbit is two seconds from saying that he's got these cheeseburgers. And that's all I'm going to say on that. But I know you got that reference. This bunny is basically like it, it, it's not Bean Bunny. It doesn't look like Bean Bunny at all. But it is Steve Whitmire doing the voice. So it's, it's kind of like a meaner. He's just a meaner Bean Bunny. Or very mean be money because yeah he threatens to rip Kermit's head off if he doesn't tell him where the rabbit hole is. But you're right, he does look. I mean, we can say it, he looks coked out. Oh yeah, more than a little bit. And he, and he's really really trying to find his hole. He's got something he's jonesing for, <laughs> and his eyes are bloodshot. <laughs> There's a lot of drug references in this one. They're just so as, many. And the yeah. Muppet, like the mayhem in particular, is perfectly cast. But we'll get to that in a second too. The story begins with Alice meeting the white rabbit for the second time, who's still looking for his hole. He finally finds the hole and blows his lines and just jumps in. And Alice tries to remind him what his lines are, but she falls in before she can finish. At which point, the so one of the things that does stick out to me about this episode, outside of a particular bit of nightmare fuel, but we'll also get to that soon, is <laughs> so much of what we see in this feels like preparation for Labyrinth. And... The se- the sequence with her falling through the hole reminds me. Well, it reminds me both of the sequence at the end of As the World Falls Down, but also that early section with the helping hands and Jennifer Connelly falling in and like trying to figure out whether to go up or down. Yep. But Scooter, the Cheshire Cat, aka Doctor Teeth, and a group of other Muppets sing the falling song to Alice to welcome her to Wonderland. This is a song that was written for the show by Ray Charles. No, not that Ray Charles. Yeah, he was known as the he he was the he was the show's music consultant, and he was known as the other Ray Charles. Hey there, Miss Alice, if you're near the palace, just drop. I'm quite good at dropping. I've been practicing a long time now. If you're really racing that rabbit, you're chasing, get hopping. I don't think a person can hop and drop at the same time. Falling, but how good am I at landing? 
house eventually lands and we see the white rabbit standing in a very small doorway, um, which she can't fit through. Uh, and that I want to give them credit for weaving this into the frame throughout the course of the episode. Um, although it is still a drug reference getting past the radar, but um, he tells her to have some dessert, which she samples cake on a nearby table and that allows her to shrink down the, to the size of the door and follow after yeah. the rabbit. Typical Alice in Wonderland stuff. It, it is, but also it goes wrong, which of course it would. It's the Muppet show. And that helps them keep Brooke only on screen so much of the time. And what she's doing on screen doesn't seem that involved. She just has to like sort of sit and recite her lines because she's either too big or too small. Scooter informs Kermit that there are some costume problems. And Fozzie shows up dressed as the Tin Woodsman, which classic Fozzie. This is actually perfectly done. Um, but he takes it a step further and says, I thought we were doing Peter Pan because why not cross all three of, um, I thought we were doing Peter Pan murdered me. I, <laughs> for some reason that joke just killed me because it comes in out of left field, but that's not our only costume problem. Miss Piggy comes out from her dressing room dressed as Alice. Um, and despite the fact that she, she is still somehow not fired, but despite the fact that she's learned all of Alice's lines, Kermit will not let her play Alice. And so she soon settles in as the, the queen of hearts, which honestly is probably the best casting decision. Like if oh, yeah. he had an extra brain cell, she'd probably be like, this is a perfect chance for me to choose scenery, even though she only has one line, right? Yeah. That's the problem. She's only got one line. She decides that she is fit to play royalty and Floyd comes in to complain about the fact that he's the caterpillar. And Kermit is very fire happy and tells Floyd that he can either go on stage or he can go to the unemployment line and Floyd and exits singing about a butterfly. I, I wrote this down. Kermit not messing around. He's this had three, three, three weeks this. in a row. He's tried to he's threatened to fire somebody. I, th- I feel like Kermit's probably just tired of not being listened to. Like there's that part of him that's just like, we've been doing this for five years. Obviously just trying to talk to you guys isn't working. So he's on a roll. His, his new go-to is, fine, you're fired. Did the piggy, he did the bow, and now he does it to Floyd. To be fair. It, they all deserve possible? it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not Floyd. Maybe not Floyd. Kermit allows Scooter to introduce the next scene, but he doesn't explain what the scene is. He does a very terrible job. Yeah, and the introduction isn't all that enthusiastic either. So Kermit just comes back out and does the job anyway. I feel like this is one of those weeks where Kermit's just like, I can't perform every role, but yeah, I want I to fire I, all of yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually but he introduces the caterpillar scene. They, they're very much relying on you, like knowing a little bit about Alice in Wonderland. They're also relying on you knowing a lot about the drug culture that's been affiliated with Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> Floyd is perfectly cast as a caterpillar. Don't take mushrooms and strange, cat, strange caterpillars. Alice complains that, she's not tall enough and she needs to be taller for the next scene. And the caterpillar suggests growing mushrooms, the kind you eat, and then you grow. But he reminds her to only take from the bottom of the mushroom because there isn't mushroom on top. And Alice takes a bite and she grows. Uh, I put down a note that said radar and I can't remember why. (laughs) (laughs) I just was, I was just taken with Floyd peddling mushrooms. Unabashedly to a child. Yeah, the kind you eat and then you grow. Uh, yeah. So he's there. 
Let's see what year. What year was White Rabbit the song came out? Oh, that was well, 60s, well before it? this. Yeah, right? that was that predated this by a decade at least. So everybody, everybody knows what's up. So we're we're moving closer to the nightmare fuel for this episode. Um, <laughs> the one bit of nightmare fuel. Uh, but the Mad Tea Party is scheduled to be on next, but Gonzo refuses to go on uh, because he thinks that Brooke is too big a star. And he's not wrong. Um, she is very, very famous and also three times her normal size. Um, she returns from stage to prove just how big and we just have this shot of I, those probably aren't even Brooke's legs. No. Um, but it looks like uh, Nana from the Muppet Babies, complete with striped socks. It does look like it does look like Nanny. <laughs> And so instead of the, the tea party, Scooter sends out Humpty Dumpty. Uh, Gonzo's got a line in this scene where he says, because uh, he's talking about Brooke and, and how what size she is and how that set scene went wrong. And he says, too many mushrooms. It'll do it every time. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> too many mushrooms. So we go to the... the I, li- I, I do like that Humpty Dumpty, when, they're, when he's about to go on stage, he says... Uh, can you have all the king's horses and all the king's men stand standby just in case? How many times has it happened, Humpty? Nice. How many times? How many times? Humpty sings, These are the Yolks folks, uh, which is another Ray Charles, but not that Ray Charles joint. I don't want to... Like, I'm glad that the, the screenshot that we have for this bit doesn't feature Humpty's face. There's something really disturbing about it. And it's like Bremen disturbing, but also like, I don't want, I I guess my, my litmus test for this is would I be freaked out if something was coming down a dark hallway with whatever this face was. And if it's a baby Muppet or this Humpty Dumpty, apparently it's just freaking terrifying. Um, The Humpty's a little unsettling. The song's fine. It's just nightmare fuel. It just, it took me out of it. They do really stomp it. They do really stomp him though. Once he falls off, oh god! And the king's horses and king's men come in. They like they don't just walk over him. They like curb stomp him. And they brought in that red-eyed horse again too. Yeah, yeah, the coke horse. Yeah, <laughs> the coke horse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and they they like they're like stomping on what's left of Humpty Dumpty. It's really brutal. Maybe that's why they weren't able to put him back together again. So in the dressing room, Kermit finds out that Brooke is still growing, at which point all of this starts to make sense because we realize that the food that she ate was provided by Dr. Bunsen Honeydew. Yep. Kermit, nine times out of ten, I'm happy to go out on a limb and try to go to Pat and just say, you know, you're stressed, you're under a lot of... Why would you feed anything that Dr. Bunsen Honeydew made to a child? (laughs) To a child. Yeah, we do have to remember that she's a child. At what point did that seem like a good idea? Like, I don't, I got to take you, I, I got to let you take the hit on this one, man. That That's a bad decision. But Bunsen. That means informs, he's growing mushrooms. Yeah. That means, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bunsen informs Brooke. He's this the, close to being Heisenberg. I, he's, he's more like Krieger than anything. Um, minus the, the van projected girlfriend, but Bunsen informs Brooke that she should start shrinking soon. And she does. She's at her normal size again. And then she's smaller than her normal size. And she keeps shrinking and shrinking. And you've got predictably the same problem in reverse, but yeah, she gets real tiny. I actually liked the, the UK spot on this one. 
Fozzie's pretty upset about just all the trouble that's going on on the episode. Dr. Teeth tries to cheer him up. Dr. Teeth, who is the Cheshire Cat. Who's, again, perfectly cast, because that makes absolute sense. And appropriately enough, he sings, uh, or he, Floyd, Gonzo, the White Rabbit, the March Hare, and uh, the Duchess all sing part of When You're Smiling. Uh, or yeah, well, there's, it's, a med- it, it's a medley of um, it's a medley of songs about smiling and being happy. It's just a it's just a, a medley of various songs about being happy that try to cheer him up. It doesn't work. It does not. That's my favorite part about it. They go through all these songs, and Fozzie even sings at the end about being happy, and everybody's happy, and they walk away, and then Fozzie just goes, "I'm so depressed." Accurate though. Yeah, yeah. That's life. Well, I, I also like it too because he's like, you know what? The best way to get these people to leave me alone is to pretend that I'm happy. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, ooh, that, hurt, that hits home. Um, we could not have an episode focusing on Lewis Carroll without a discussion of the Jabberwock. So the Muppets performed the poem. So this was my nightmare fuel. Fair. When Absolutely I was a kid. fair. Um, something about those teeth, like... It's not quite, uh, I forget the, the name of the mascot for Mad TV. Oh, I don't, oh Alfred E. Newman? Yeah. Uh, but like a weird elongated head version of that. But Scooter is sent by Rolf to slay the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwock, my son. The jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jump-jump bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while and thought. And he describes it as the weirdest thing that they've ever done on the show. This isn't from Alice in Wonderland, though, right? This is from, from I don't look, looking, think so. from, from the Looking Glass, I think. Mm-hmm. This was terrifying to me as a child. Um, now I think it's awesome. Uh, now I really enjoy it. I do enjoy. I also really like <laughs> the, the the intro though, where Kermit's like, "Make this a good intro, Chief. This scene needs all the help it can get." Well, at least you're in the scene, so you know what it is. Have you seen the scene? Even when you know what it is, you don't know what it is. I don't know. Would you consider this the weirdest thing they've ever done? No, baby. There's got to be some abstract piece they've done at some point. Well, I mean, you could go back to Salmon Friends or something like that. But realistically, this doesn't disturb me the way that the abstract Muppets do. It's still, it's still very strange. It's still very strange. It, it does have the green frog pigs. You don't like it those? It does. Yeah, I don't. But yeah. there's something, I guess, something about the dreamlike aspect of it. Soften that. Um, like something about the way that it was lit or something. I like Scooter and his vorpal sword. Mm-hmm. And as enoughish thought he stood, the Jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the Tolji wood and burbled as he came. Burble, burble. Verbal, verbal. Aha! One, two, one, two. And through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. <laughs> Left it dead, and with its head, he went galumphing back. The snicker-snack is classic for that particular reason. We go backstage again, and things get a little single white female, or single porcine female kermit's looking for microscopic brooke and piggy jealous of the part that brooke gets to play uh decides that she is going to pretend to sneeze 
um, and accidentally step on Brooke. Now, we've never seen Piggy outside of heels, which means A, that's terrible, but B, it's far more likely that she'll miss. Yeah. And miss she does, which Brooke is kind enough to let her know. Because Kermit's like, don't move. Don't step anywhere. Brooke is around here somewhere. We just can't see her. And, and then Kermit leaves the stage. And then Piggy just goes, looks around and goes, achoo, and stomps. <laughs> <laughs> and then achoo, and stomps. And then she looks down. She goes, oh, so sorry. I'm so sorry. So not only should Miss Piggy be fired, she should also be in jail. It is attempted murder. Just a little bit. It is attempted murder. I'm not. I don't want, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> Attempted murder of a minor. Yeah. This, this episode's aiming for the fences, but the thing is, it's a great episode too. It is the next, I lost my shit. The trial scene. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectly cast. I absolutely, <laughs> oh, I felt like I was a little kid again. I was laughing so obnoxiously because it's so dumb and it's so perfectly cast. Kermit, realizing that she's not there, tries to put a stop to the trial scene, but the show's well beyond his control at this point. He didn't fire people in time. Marvin Suggs appears as the judge who decides that he is going to swear in Kermit since Alice isn't there, and he hits him with a gavel. Of any Muppet that you could ever give a gavel to, Marvin Suggs. Well, he always has a gavel. That's his thing. Yes. He... he I, lo- I like when he, he asks Kermit, he's like, have you been sworn in? And Kermit goes, at, yes, in, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a pretty standard state. That's, that's a pretty good line. Yeah. It's <laughs> a pretty good line. Yeah. And they, uh, yeah, and Marvin is, is, is the judge of the, of the trial. And he um, is in rare form. He is. Frank is on fire. He assaults uh, the jury. Yeah, he plays Lady of Spain, which was the first time we ever saw him doing the Muppaphones. He played Lady of Spain. Man, a lot of callback songs in these episodes. Yeah. Like, because he had done Lady of Spain before, but he plays it on the heads of, heads of the juries, heads of the jury, and the heads of the jury members. I know that this episode isn't on Disney Plus, but if at all possible, you should absolutely, at the very least, see this scene because it is so good. Yeah, just to see, just to see Frank Oz on fire. Uh, he then calls to the queen, played by the murderous Miss Piggy, to read Alice's sentence, and she says the ever-famous, off with her head. Um, off with her head! That's her one. She says it very unceremoniously, too, because Piggy, Piggy is so upset she only has one line. So she says it very, with very with, uh, very little affect. Mm-hmm. She's actually reading it from the page when she does it. She, she didn't even bother to memorize her line. Uh, so we go backstage again and Kermit is just losing it. He's trying to cancel the rest of the show until he real or he's informed that Brooke is back to her normal size, at which point he calls everyone back on stage for the mad tea party, which honestly is probably the best capstone for this episode because of how chaotic it's been. The party sounds, the party sounds, the party starts with a rendition of twinkle, twinkle, little bat, which is just twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yeah. Which is just chaos. It is. It's so much. It's fun. And of course, Gonzo's the Hatter. Again, yeah. perfect casting. Have some wine? I don't see any wine. There isn't any! <laughs> well, then it's not very nice of you to offer it. And it's not very nice of you to sit down without being invited! <laughs> Who are you? I'm the Dormouse, Brock. That's Brock! <laughs> That's funny. You don't look like a mouse. <laughs> 
He doesn't look like a door either. <laughs> Tell us a story. Tell us a story. Oh, yeah. Uh, once upon a time, there were three sisters who lived in a well. <laughs> Everybody move one place. We got a chicken playing the dormouse. And I think, is this... Remember what the dormouse said. Yeah, the, this is the first time we've heard Camilla talk, though. Like, properly talk. It's not Camilla. It's not. No, I don't think so. Oh, I assumed call, it was. But I the gender is a he. But then again, it can't be a he. It looks like a hen. Nah. I don't know. I don't but think it's Camilla. Alice comes in. They offer a wine, which isn't there, which is probably for the best. Um, <laughs> and She's a child. Yeah. The chicken tells a very brief story about three sisters that live in a well. And the Mad Hatter plays a little bit of musical chairs because he wants a clean cup. And so he has everyone move one place. It's all chaos. Yeah, it's it's complete chaos. Statler and Waldorf come in again, perfectly cast as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. <laughs> yeah. Winner Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Everything looks so delicious. <laughs> no room, no, no room. room. Have some wine. I don't see any wine. There isn't any. No. <laughs> This whole tea party is getting totally out of control. And, and then and then Kermit, you know, and Kermit comes in. And Kermit's finally like, this is it. We're done. We're absolutely done. There's, you know, it's over. There's no way out of this. And 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 so, I think Brooks, someone says, I think Brooks says. Um, well, why don't we sing a song? Well, what, what can we sing? sing? We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is the wizard of a wizard, if ever a wizard there was. Fozzie appears from the wings, still dressed as the Tin Man, and begins singing. The reason why this is not on Disney Plus, most likely, begins singing. We're off to see the wizard from the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz, which is not, despite against against all probability these days is not owned by Disney. Yet. It Wait, is, they own Fox now, don't they? It's not Fox. Wizard of Oz was an MGM film. Oh, right. MGM belongs to Warner Brothers. The Time Warner. So my guess is they just couldn't they couldn't meet eye to eye on this one. They got away with the that's all the, 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 that's all folks in one of the episodes. Mm-hmm. Or whatever, but um I I this is most likely the reason why this episode is not on Disney Plus, I guess, because you can't really cut it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the only thing I can come up with, uh, unless there, because because the thing is, all the other music in this episode, most of the songs are originals, are ri- written written for the episode, so that so it can't be that. Yeah, it's it's probably that. I will say, without having seen it yet, if this had been the last episode, it would have felt like a good send off, just because of the chaos and like Kermit just done with everyone by the end of it no it's a good it's it's a good way to end the episode because you know the tea party scene is so chaotic and and it's it's supposed to be nonsense because they're all mad Mm. um and whatever and it's a very muppet thing to go like uh how do we get out of this uh let's everybody sing that was what they did and they have the perfect and they have the perfect joke set up with fozzy being the tin man the whole time Mm mm-hmm that's that's the best part to me is that they've established Fozzie dressed up like the Tin Man. Oh yeah, if he just come in from out of left field with us never having seen him as the Tin Man, then it wouldn't have worked at all. 
No, but him him coming and singing "We're Off to See the Wizard" is so good. Her lip syncing leaves a little to be to, little to be desired. I, I'm sure she got better over time. Her lip syncing was pretty bad. <laughs> like, there's points where I was watching her going, like, does she know the words? Does she even know the words to this song? Because she's not a singer, and that's apparent, and that's completely fine. Like, they don't really have attempt to have her sing. Uh, we we go to our clothes, and Brooke reveals that she always wanted to do Alice in Wonderland, at which point Kermit hopes that one day she'll be able to do Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a good 40% of Kermit's tenure on the show has just been apologizing to people for what his co-stars have done. But he he congratulates her on being the Muppet Show's youngest guest star, at which point Fozzie runs in and says, wait, they never did the 10 Woodsman scene, which I want to know, like... Did Fozzie as a small child try to sneak in to watch so many different movies and just assume that they're all part of the same thing? Like just catching bits and pieces of them or something? Because I'm wondering how he got these that confused. Guess he's just a dummy. Yeah, or we could just go with that. I like this one. I think it's a shame it's not on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. Uh, Brooke was great uh, on it. And the thing is, we've had episodes where the guest star is sort of a non-entity. Like the uh, the Bob Hope one. Right tried to do what they did with this one, but was not remotely as effective. And maybe part of that's due to the fact that there was a higher concept for this. And if there'd been a higher concept for the Bob Hope one, maybe they would have been able to justify him not being as present, but they got around the, the limitations and they did a really good job. I lip stinking, notwithstanding, I think Brooke was great on this, but it was, it was a solid couple of episodes, certain cultural content warnings, notwithstanding next time kill hall, the writers, Hoist the laugh track. Uh, next time, we have episode 507 with actress Glenda Jackson and episode number 508 with puppeteer Senior Wences. A big influence on. Uh, I know when they got Senior Wences to be on the show, Jim and the gang were very, very excited to have him on. Uh, this should be too interesting. I know, I know the Glenda Jackson one pretty well. Mm. So, ooh, Debbie Harry's coming up. Nice. Yeah. So. But, um, but yeah, yeah. But until then, um, my name is Chad. My name is Nick. And we will, uh, we, we thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. What's that noise? I think that's Lewis Carroll turning over in his grave. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs>